Hello, I'm Douglas Hardy. It's Monday, the 30th of November. Today, the United Arab Emirates Central Bank steps in to prop up Dubai. How will world markets react? Well, I think what Dubai has shown is that the financial crisis is by no means over. The notoriously private Tiger Woods faces the spotlight after that early morning car crash. A group of two-wheeled climate protesters prepares to disrupt the Copenhagen Climate Summit. We've spent a couple of days coming up with a prototype and then we've been welding and angle grinding them together to create the, the two double bikes. Zillionaire Zach, the non-dom, causes a headache at Tory HQ. Party officials said, it's nothing to do with us, it's a private matter. Well, of course it isn't with a party candidate, especially one as conspicuous and, and wealthy as Zach Goldsmith. And the North of England's answer to the Turner Prize. And there's no reason why you can't make art outside of the, the city of London. Guardian Daily from guardian.co.uk. First of all, though, the news and a look at the papers with Bill Overton. Up to 10,000 people in Britain die of cancer every year because they're diagnosed too late. The National Director of Cancer Services, Professor Mike Richards, says Britain is poor compared to the rest of the world at diagnosing the condition, and it's unacceptable. In Honduras, the five-month stalemate's been ended with the election of a new president. He's a conservative opposition leader and rancher who won with more than 55% of the vote. But at least two South American countries, Brazil and Argentina, say they won't accept the election. John Demyanyuk is going on trial for the second time for Second World War crimes. He's already been convicted in an Israeli court and then released because of mistaken identity. Now he's being tried in Germany, accused of being a camp guard in Poland at a Nazi death camp. The 89-year-old former US car worker was born in Ukraine. Golfer Tiger Woods has broken his silence over an incident three days ago when he crashed his car outside his home in Florida. But he's not said much more other than to confirm on his website that he was in a car accident and that he was responsible, while his wife acted courageously to help him. He then asks for his privacy to be respected and he still refused to talk to police. People have been warned against selling gold jewellery. Trading standards offices in several parts of the country have found wildly different offers in cash for gold postal companies, which has sprung up during the recession. But potential gold for Britain's Got Talent singer Susan Boyle, or Subo as she's also known. Her first album, I Dreamed a Dream, has gone straight to number one in the British charts. In America, she's already outselling Rihanna and Lady Gaga. Virtually no morning paper carries the same front page lead, but three give prominence to Iran's announcement that it'll expand its new nuclear programme. Our headline is Iran defies UN with plans for 10 new nuclear plants. The Times says Iran stokes tension with huge nuclear expansion. Our lead is the warning that late cancer diagnosis kills 10,000 a year and the Telegraph reckons its most important story is the death of the nuclear family. It reports the Family and Parenting Institute believes it'll soon become the norm for children to be raised by relatives other than their parents. The Telegraph also carries a picture of the woman it says is at the centre of the Tiger Woods car crash mystery. The Mail chooses a picture of Woods and his Swedish wife its front page. Inside it also reports the rumours involving the New Yorker Rachel Uchitel, who it claims has a history. Another story asks whether the death of his father sent Woods off the rails. On the sports pages, it's all about Chelsea's 3-0 win over Arsenal to put them further ahead at the top of the Premiership table. Drogba, the destroyer, says the Express after he scored twice. This is the stuff of champions, boasts captain John Terry in the sun, and the title is ours is what manager Ancelotti told The Times. There's more sport and news all day at guardian.co.uk. 
Trading begins in Dubai today for the first time since the state-owned investment company Dubai World asked creditors for a six-month freeze on debt repayments. That caused widespread global panic last week, with analysts predicting the situation could lead to fresh financial turmoil. For the latest, our business reporter Nick Mathiasen's here in the studio. And Nick, what's likely to happen this week? Well, uh, a number of things will happen this week. The the first bit of news that's just broken is that the United Arab Emirates' central bank has moved to reassure overseas banks by providing what they call special liquidity into the markets, which the foreign banks will draw on. So fears that foreign banks may lose tens of billions of dollars may be somewhat uh, averted now. Also, what will happen today is that markets in Dubai will reopen for the first time since the Eid holidays. The announcement that Dubai was wanted a standstill on their debts happened just as the markets closed before the Eid holidays. So today we are likely to see calamitous falls in share prices on Dubai banks, Arab banks and Arab-related property companies and private equity companies, which will be incredibly severe. And I guess what investors globally are going to be looking for is just uh, how far the ripples are going to spread. Indeed, I I think this story will run for six months to a year because there is so much money involved and and the uh, relationship between the various businesses associated with Dubai World are so kind of complicated that it it will take a long time to unravel and, and banks will will still be in line for tens of billions of losses in this, in, out of all this. And so in terms of the general levels of world markets, I mean, we have obviously seen these gains in the FTSE 100, for example, over recent months. Just how, how big is the effect going to be in the likes of London and New York? Well, I think what Dubai has shown is that the financial crisis is by no means over and other countries which have severe debt problems such as Ireland, Greece and even the UK, um, there's a sense in which over the next uh, few months or over the next couple of years we could see similar problems with countries requesting standstill arrangements on some of their sovereign debt Uh, and so this kind of financial crisis has still got a lot of life left in it. And was this just a case of Dubai World overstretching itself? It was buying everything from P&O to property companies. Was it, is it just a simple case of it's got too much debt now? Well, in many respects, some of the assets it's bought in the Western Hemisphere have been very, very good. I think... Uh, from where I, uh, from how I read it, it's how they overstretch themselves in the kingdom itself, creating this, you know, ridiculous empire of offices and and also, you know, a snow dome in the middle of the desert, quite quite preposterous stuff. And it's that those those things that have really done for it. I mean, buying some grade A property in London or or, or some really key infrastructure assets hasn't hurt it as much as going ott on trying to create dubai as a as a as a as a kind of a desert kingdom and what is going to happen now to those snow mountains and these kind of you know 13 star hotels what's going to happen in dubai itself well i think there'll be a lot of sites that won't see any activity i think many of the pipe dreams and schemes will come to nothing and the dubai world uh, scheme which the observer wrote about yesterday that that has completely been mothballed where there's kind of like apartment blocks on areas representing different uh, countries i mean that some of these kind of uh, ridiculous things i think will just bite the uh, will, will fade into the, the sand dust. not the dust perhaps the dust indeed <laughs> 
And you can keep right up to date on what is happening in Dubai and how world markets are reacting at guardian.co.uk slash business. And also on The Guardian's website today, a crackdown on social housing cheats. More on that at guardian.co.uk slash society. Zan Rice looks at proposals for draconian new laws on homosexuality in Uganda. Guardian.co.uk slash world for more details there. And go to guardian.co.uk slash religion to find out why one bishop believes Christmas carols are misleading tosh. I'm Douglas Hardy. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Later on in the show, the art competition which is being dubbed the Turner of the North. First of all, though, it's just a week now until the Climate Change Summit begins in Copenhagen. We've already had world leaders, including Barack Obama, saying there's little chance of legal agreement there. And the latest development to dash the credibility of the conference is the news that BNP leader Nick Griffin is to represent the European Parliament. Griffin brands climate change activists as cranks and says we're simply being bullied and brainwashed into believing the world's warming up. As well as official representatives, protesters are also getting ready for the summit. Our reporter Stephen Morris has been following a biking group from the southwest of England who are planning an alternative way to deliver their message. A normally pristine, bright white space at the Arnolfini Modern Art Gallery in Bristol looks more like a second-hand bicycle shop today. There are bits of bikes everywhere as well as pumps, banners, oil cans, all scattered all over the place, higgledy-piggledy. This is the temporary headquarters of the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination, a group of artists and eco-activists. They are building three prototype bike blocks. These blocks will serve two purposes. They are pieces of art, but once the group is satisfied with them, they plan to build the real things in Copenhagen, and use them in acts of civil disobedience at next month's Climate Change Summit. Just give me your name and your title, please. Uh, it's John Jordan, and I'm uh, part of the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination. And tell us about your bike block project, then. So the bike block is the uh, building of a series of machines of resistance and civil disobedience for the... 16th of December day of civil disobedience called Reclaim Power which is happening in Copenhagen and the idea of that day is to flow through the, 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 the and over the police lines into the UN climate summit to create a people summit a true summit for climate justice which is uh, free from corporate and government lobbying and so when I first spoke to you about this some weeks ago you didn't know what you were going to build Can you tell us now what you have built? So we have three prototypes. There's the modular prototype where anyone can become the bike block. Uh, So these modular units that go onto the bikes made out of recycled bikes because everything is going to be made out of old bikes. We're not going to buy any new materials. It's all about recycling what's already there. And there are thousands of old bikes in Copenhagen. And the other mod- the bit is the DDT, the Double Double Trouble, which is a kind of chariot bike made of high bikes and two high bikes that is, can be used for moving things, moving people, uh, can be turned into something that, that can maybe get through fences and so on. And then we have what we're calling the machine, uh, and that is going to be under apps uh, until we get to Copenhagen, uh, and uh, that will be a 
the machine. <laughs> You've got to give us a bit of a clue, surely? We'll see when we get to Copenhagen. It's, uh, it's, it's the third part of a beautiful trilogy. In a container outside the Arnolfini on the Bristol Harbour side, other members of the group are welding and grinding, sticking bits of bikes together. So what you've got here is just like two bikes on top of one another? Yeah, yeah, that's what we got. Um, we've spent a couple of days coming up with a prototype and then we've been welding and angle grinding them together to create the, the two double bikes. And the idea is to put them together and create the double double treble or the DDT. So you go to Copenhagen? Potentially. So you may be riding one of these. People ride this, do they? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We can, we can. Oh, show me. I haven't got a camera. We could show you. But yeah, yeah. We've been riding over the past few days, and they ride really well. And the whole uh, thing so works. We're, we're not taking them to Copenhagen. We're going to be building. This is just a prototype. So we'll be building more in Copenhagen. You've been yeah. getting your ideas together here. Then you'll go over there and. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you want to go? I'd never go on the bike. Yeah. In the rain. That's a bit wet, isn't it? <laughs> that report from Stephen Morris and someone else taking a close interest in the summit is the philosopher A.C. Grayling. He says public understanding of climate change is hampered by the complexities of the science. If you look at the individual level and at the government level, at the individual level, you know, climate change is just incredibly inconvenient because it means you've got to change your lifestyle in ways that you don't want to change. In fact, your aspirations are to emit more carbon if you, if you, you know, won the lottery or something. And for governments, you know, they're worried about um, unemployment increasing, they're worried about GDP declining, they're worried about their competitive advantage with other countries if they try and take too much action to be greener. So th- there are lots of motivations for trying not to take it seriously or trying to put the brakes on a bit or wait for other people to take some action. And the result is, of course, delay and, and muddle. This is an example of how uh, an insufficient degree of scientific literacy in the general population comes into play. Because if you look at something like the, the recent IPCC report on climate change, the fourth one, it's full of italicized expressions, likely, very likely, high degree of confidence, low degree of confidence, talking about the evidence. Now, the fact is the scientific evidence is is complicated, and looking at something as big and as messy and, and as difficult as climate change and all the evidence and, and all the indications and trying to marry them all together, trying to make sense of, of what's happening, there's now, you know, the, the um, Stern Report and the IPCC have said it's unequivocal that there is anthropogenic uh, climate change, that, uh, that, that there is a serious problem facing us, and it's a, it's a health problem. Billion people are going to be affected by rising sea levels you know it's a massive problem and even if it were only half right it would be or even only a quarter right it would be a big motivation to do something because it's going to cause all sorts of of chaos and and what does all this relate to it relates to the fact that there's a 50 percent probability that the climate is going to increase in in you know it's going to go up two degrees centigrade in, in in warmth by 2050 you know even that is a is a probabilistic uh, um, uh, claim so you know, it's, it's a lot of uncertainties, a lot of difficulties, a lot of complexities, out of which a pattern emerges that says we've got to do something. The philosopher A.C. Grayling there. Now, under normal circumstances, the Green champion and prospective Tory parliamentary candidate Zach Goldsmith would hope to generate some positive headlines out of Copenhagen. However, he's just been outed as a non-dom. That is, he uses non-domicile status to avoid paying huge amounts of tax on his estimated £200 million fortune. 
Mr Goldsmith says it's a personal matter. The question is, will the voters of Richmond in south-west London see it the same way? With more details, Michael White is in Westminster. Well, uh, things moved slowly to begin with after the Sunday Times made allegations that uh, uh, Zach Goldsmith candidate for a very winnable south-west London seat of uh, Richmond Park was a non-dom, non-domicile for tax purposes. Local activists told me they're very proud of their candidate, he worked very hard, and he does pay tax in Britain. Party officials said it's nothing to do with us, it's a private matter. Well, of course it isn't with a party candidate, especially one as conspicuous and, and wealthy as Zach Goldsmith. And um, late uh, yesterday afternoon Mr Goldsmith came out with a statement. I was told by one... Um, Local party activists had had to uh, consult his accountants, Price Waterhouse, before he made it. Anyway, he came out fighting, and he said that he had derived very few benefits from this. It was all a situation inherited from his dear old dad, Sir James Goldsmith, now dead and that he was bringing his tax arrangements home anyway. He strongly denied uh, charges made by people like the Lib Dem spokesman Lord uh, Oakshot, that he's not fit to sit in Parliament, keeping hundreds of millions offshore, and he said uh, it was, uh, Goldsmith said, for Lord Oakshot to suggest that I've dodged any tax is simply defamatory. Well, nobody denies that uh, he's got quite a lot of money abroad, and nobody denies that his homes, he's got several, needless to say, and a complicated price life, just to make it even more complicated, uh, are held by a family trust. So as usual with the very rich, it's a bit more complicated than the likes of you and me quite understand. So does this do anything, A, to his chances of remaining the Tory candidate for Richmond, and B, if that is the case, of him winning it? Well, uh, as soon as I heard this news, I I said it'll all depend whether or not they like him, whether or not the local Tories think he's a good lad, charming young man, handsome young Etonian, glamorous wife, all the usual stuff. He's left his wife, actually, but that's not our business. Uh, uh, Or whether they think he's a bit of a layabout. Uh, My conversation today suggests the local party will stand by him. They don't think he's done anything wrong. So it's really then, at that point, up to the relatively sophisticated and well-heeled voters of Richmond Park. This is really the, you know, the old town of Richmond in Surrey on the banks of the Thames, where Susan Kramers, the local Lib Dem MP, used to be Tory when I was a lad, uh, been Lib Dem for a decade. Vince Cable has got the adjoining seat of Twickenham, so they're well dug in there, and I think they control the local council too. She has 46.7% of the vote, I'm in a position to tell you. Uh, the Tory has 39.4%, so that's what, uh, um, you need about a 4 or 5% swing to take that. It ought to be doable, the way things are uh, for David Cameron in the opinion polls, but don't forget, Lib Dems dig in quite well. Once they've got a seat, they hang on like limpets. And, you know, prosperous liberal sort of area like Richmond, uh, uh, Mrs. Kramer, a well-known, fairly busy figure, uh, uh, and Dr. uh, Vince Cable to help her out. You know, it won't be that straightforward. Michael White talking to me from Westminster. Now, mystery continues to surround the exact circumstances of Tiger Woods' weekend car crash. Florida police are still waiting to interview the golfer, who was found semi-conscious with facial injuries after his car reportedly hit a tree near Orlando. As our golf correspondent Lawrence Donegan has been telling me, Woods is a notoriously private individual. An extraordinarily private person. I mean, he turned pro in the tail end of 1996. Been playing professional golf for 13 years, been at the top of his profession for that entire time. Yet people really don't know that much about him. <laughs> it's amazing that somebody could be such a celebrity and yet have so little known about him. And I cover him every week or every golf tour or lots of golf tournaments. He's very reticent to speak even about the most mundane aspects of his uh, golf swing. 
And as regards his private life, well, we don't really know that much at all, other than the fact that he's married and he has two children. I mean, that's really just about it. And I mean, there have uh, been these rumours on the TMZ website, haven't there? Mm. Yeah, again, you know, who knows? Since the accident on Friday, when the vacuum has been filled with all sorts of lurid stuff, much of it peddled by TMZ, uh, which, uh, again... Probably, you know, most people would know because that was the first website to to break break the news of Michael Jackson's death. So it has a certain degree of credibility. They're, the main thrust of their uh, claims, allegations, or whatever you want to call them, is that that, that the Woods uh, Woods and his wife Eileen were involved in some sort of domestic dispute. They ran outside. He drove off. She ran outside chasing after the car with a golf club. Again, I have to stress these are all kind of allegations. Woods has a golf tournament host in California this week, which starts on Thursday in aid of his charitable foundation. Usually he gives a press conference on the Tuesday before the, the, the event starts. It remains to be seen whether or not he'll actually turn up for that. Again, it all fits into this pattern of silence, of, of reticence. I, I'm sure you know he wants to pr- pr- protect himself and his family, but it's really not doing his public image that much good right now. Lawrence Donegan talking to me from the States. Well, to Yorkshire now, where the shortlist for a prestigious art prize has just been announced. The nature of the entries has led to the competition being nicknamed the Turner of the North. Here's our reporter, Martin Wainwright. I'm at the opening of the Northern Art Prize in Leeds. Um, It's now in its third year, and I'm with Pippa Hale, who is the genius and organising spirit behind this. Pippa, can you just tell us what's going off this year? Yes, well, we're in our third year, as you say, and um, there's an exhibition at Leeds Art Gallery which runs from now until the 21st of February. And we've got four artists showing, um, Pavel Buchler, Nick Crowe and Ian Rawlinson, Rachel Goodyear and Matt Stokes. And so they'll be showing there um, throughout the ground floor until then. And the thing about these four artists is they're all from the north that's a requirement um they don't necessarily need to be from the north because obviously pavel's from um from czechoslovakia but they all need to live in the north so all of them operate on a national and international level within the art world but they've all chosen to live in the north of england good and pippa you're a successful artist um working in leeds and that that in a way is what prompted you and your your colleagues to start this the, the belief that to be a successful artist you don't have to go to london Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think most of my drive to make different things happen, whether it's the Northern Art Prize or Project Space Leeds or Art in Unusual Spaces, is born out of my own experience of being an artist here and the lack of opportunities sometimes, particularly in Leeds, not necessarily across the whole of the North, to try and create opportunities and an infrastructure for artists so they can live and actually you know, make a living in, in the city. And the prize certainly helps because it's, what is it, 16,000 quid for the winner? 16,500 for the winner and £1,500 for the runners-up. I'm, I'm with um, Rachel Goodyear, one of the four on the shortlist for the Northern Art Prize. And, and Rachel, you, you've brought a kind of, they're, they're very pleased that there's an international element to this. You know, they don't want people to think it's just little northern people tucked away in their burrows. Mm-hmm. And the, the, another of the entrants um, is working in Berlin. But quite a lot of your work is in collections abroad and has come from quite a long way away to, to, be, to be in Leeds. Yes, it's like, I mean with my work it's like sometimes it's like some pieces will like disappear very very quickly into collections and I know that they're being shown elsewhere but I, I kind of I can go for a really long time without actually like seeing some of my own work to actually like draw them all together into one installation it's like really nice kind of see how they work together kind of like actually like see them just existing together for a short period of time and but I think I think like the that whole international elements is really important as well because we are all 
we're all northern artists we all live in the north but we've kind of we all we all kind of like work sort of nationally and internationally as well so it's like these are our bases okay i'm with them i'm with two of the other finalists nick crow and ian rawlinson nick now you're from barnsley ian's from macclesfield working as a pair could you just tell me what 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 that involves i think i mean ian and i've been working together since 1994 actually about the first year that we spent working together was spent entirely just talking not making anything and then we spent another year making one piece of work and that was kind of, a, I think that was a really important process because it was about kind of establishing a shared language. And now after so many years, we sort of, you know, we finish each other's sentences. We do, after this length of time working together, we do know a lot about the way each other think. You're living proof that you don't have to be in London to be a successful artist. And I suppose in a way that's one of the, I know Pippa, that's one of her motivations in, and her colleagues in setting up this this prize to emphasise that yeah. people in Manchester, uh, people in Leeds, people anywhere in, in, in the North Country, um, it's a good place to, to be an artist. Well, it is a good place to be an artist, and there's no reason why you can't make art out, outside of the, the city of London. Martin Wainwright reporting from Leeds. And that's it for this edition of Guardian Daily. I'm Douglas Hardy. The producers were Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. Goodbye for now. Thank you.